could refuse an invitation like that. Okay. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Buddhang Damang Sanghang Namasami If you get down to the basics of what Buddhist practice is all about, it's about purifying what we call the mind. Now, the mind in Buddhism doesn't refer just to the intellect. It's a much broader category than that. The mind is um, essentially anything that's not physical. Consciousness, awareness. One of the terms we have for it in Pali is called citta. Uh, C-I-T-T-A. And one of the ways you could look at the human predicament is that the jitta in its natural state uh, you could compare it to infinite light but because of accumulated negative tendencies which we call kilesas it's like this infinite light been compressed into a ball with a bunch of sticky tar around it. And so what we have to work with sometimes is just a ball of sticky tar. And uh, you think, well, look at that and say, what's so great about the mind? It's a ball of sticky tar. And then, uh, and then occasionally either through systematic practice or through just a natural inclination. A ray of light may shine, shine through. It's what we might call insight. And then you start to get an inkling of, oh, well, wait a minute, there's actually light there. It's like, it's like in cloudy days, you know, the the sun is still shining. You just got to go up into an airplane or, or wait for the clouds to dispel. But the, the sun is still shining. The nature of the mind doesn't change. The nature of the jitta 
doesn't change. The way the Buddha summed up the, the kilesas, I'm going to use the term kilesas rather than the, um, any English translation, because the English translations tend to um, lead to even more misunderstanding sometimes. But uh, one of the ways the Buddha summed up the kilesas, or the, these negative, unwholesome qualities of mind, is greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, the term greed, hatred, and delusion, even in English, can be very misleading. So it's worth learning a, a little bit of Pali. Now, the word raga is what we usually translate as greed, but uh, raga is, is much more broad than that. Um, it's, it's like the mind, or part of the mind, is just not content. It's not peaceful. And it tries to go out into the realm of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or the mind, and, and, and seek its happiness there. And the reason it does that is because there's a basic deluded understanding that happiness can only be found by going out and grasping something, going out, seeking something external, seeking something out in the realm of what we perceive externally. And that can be very subtle, or it can be quite gross. The second major category is called dosa. And we can translate it as hatred, but that's only the most extreme version. A much more subtle versions are, are probably much more common and problematic to us on a daily level. Any, toward a, any, any sort of aversion towards what's happening in the present, any sort of uh, not being at peace with the way things are, wanting it to be different, wishing it was different because it's unpleasant in some way. You know, this can manifest as anger, manifest in frustrations, can just manifest as chronic depression. You know, the subtle, not wanting to be this way, not wanting, and it, it, it's very draining if it's going to push down, and it's very draining of energy. If it manifests, comes to the surface, it's a bit like a volcano, and there's a lot of energy there. But either way, it's not beneficial, either for ourselves or others. Now, both of these stem from the basic problem of what we call delusion, Pali moha. The essence of moha is conceiving a sense of individual self apart from the rest of nature based on what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and cognize in our minds. It 
So these are the basic things, the basic tars that are stuck on on the uh, the intrinsic ball of the jitta. And a lot of what we're doing is just kind of a a systematic, repetitive practice of cleaning the tar off bit by bit. And how long it takes really depends on each individual. It depends on how much tar is there. It depends on how persistent we are in our efforts. So when when there's a certain amount of um, reduction of raga, dosa, and moha, greed, hatred, and delusion, when insight goes deep enough, then the process of cleaning off all of that muck reaches a state of no return. It reaches a point where you can't go back anymore. It can't go. You can't go back to where you where you've been anymore. It's it, the process has gained so much momentum that it's just inevitable that it's going to carry through to complete purity. Now that's what the Buddha termed stream entry or sotapan. And from that point on, there's still a lot of work to do, but compared to most beings in, in the realm of birth and death, then uh, we're in a pretty good position. And in terms of security, the Buddha said, well, that's the only real place of security, the only real point of security in all of samsara, the realm of birth and death. When all of the... Uh, Tars off the jitta, and then, you know, gradually, you know, more and more light is escaping, until there's not a speck of tar left, and there's just that radiant, infinite, boundless light, to use a metaphor. And that's the state that we call arhatship. It's not actually appropriate to call it a state of mind. It's something much more profound than that. It's something beyond what we identify with as uh, either in the body or the mind. Now the enlightenment of an arhant is exactly the same as the enlightenment of a fully enlightened Buddha in terms of the level of enlightenment, the purity, uh, are exactly the same. The, uh, the radiant, uh, the freedom of that light is no difference between the Arhant and the Buddha. However, the Buddha has developed so many other qualities, so many other um, qualities that give him a tremendous, tremendous potential to be a great teacher. So when we look at the, the process of what, we've, uh, what we're in for, 
what we're doing it for. Say, well, this is the state where we are. And if we look at, for example, um, raga, or the inclination of the mind to go out and seek happiness from without, then the very basic practices that we have, the systematic practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, sila being morality, samadhi being a peaceful stability of mind, and panya being wisdom. Now when when these kilesas, these unwholesome states of mind aren't really manifesting very strongly, then you don't really need moral guidelines in your life because there's a natural inclination to be moral. You're not naturally inclined to do anything that would harm yourself or harm anyone else. But what happens is sometimes the raga, you know, it just kind of flashes up. And if we don't have any basic guidelines in our life, then that can um, lead to following through with it and, uh, and lead to things which are harmful to ourselves or others. It can lead to a lot of pain that way. So that's why we have guidelines, for example, the five precepts. You know, I set certain guidelines and we say, well, Whatever happens in Dharma practice, whatever comes up in my mind, I'm just going to agree, I'm not going to go over these boundaries. And then when we're on retreat, we can refine it a little bit more and say, okay, we've got eight precepts, and we've got these precepts as our boundaries, and whatever comes up in our mind, we're not going to go beyond these boundaries. And that gives us something very solid to work with, you know, when it comes up, then because if you don't have something very concrete, then it's just so easy to justify following the kilesis. But when you have a very uh, clear guideline, then it's like, boom. And then, of course, if you want to uh, get more refined, you can take on 227 precepts, and then we have all of the various minor rules that we follow, probably thousands if you add them all up, all for the purpose of refining sila so that um, we have this opportunity to, anytime raga, desire, comes up, then uh, it gives us a very clear picture and reflection of what's going on in our own mind. The role samadhi plays in this is when we're developing meditation and we're starting to focus our energy more inward, we start to to uh, come in contact with a certain peace and serenity within our own heart. And then naturally we're, we're less inclined to try to seek happiness from without. It's like we're programmed to seek happiness, but 
if we can't find it within our own heart, then naturally we're going to look for it somewhere else. Somewhere, whether it's, you know, whether it's an ice cream cone or a career or a relationship or whatever. But the role of samadhi, one of the main roles of samadhi, is that when the mind's energy becomes more unified, less distracted, naturally it becomes a very still, peaceful, and joyous. And then there's not a whole lot of inclination to go and seek anything better because you feel like, well, the happiness that I'm looking for, you know, it's, it's been in my heart the whole time. But that samadhi, again, is based on causes and conditions. It's based on um, developing meditation. It's based on certain external conditions. And when those conditions disappear, then our level of inner peace can also disappear. We become more agitated again. And when, when our hearts become more agitated again, then we're still looking for happiness, and we can't find it in our heart, and we get into the old habit of seeking it externally, and again, the whole process starts over. So now, wisdom is that which can uproot the kilesas. It's even more profound than samadhi. And wisdom will be based on samadhi, based on that peace of mind. But through particular types of investigations, systematic investigation of the body and mind, then a depth of understanding, a clarity of understanding, a, a realistic understanding begins to arise. The delusion begins to fade. And then from that, even more happiness starts to come up. And, and that's the type of, um, that's the, the practice which will pull the tar off completely. There are many practical ways to deal to uh, to bring this into your life. So when we talk about these practices, we do. I like to teach things which are going to be easily uh, integrated into daily life. So even when we come on retreat, and we want to, we don't want to have a, a life where you know it's chaotic and then we come on retreat and we work hard and and we have special conditions and we achieve a certain level of peacefulness but then as soon as we go back out it it all tends to fade away now that's inevitable to a certain degree but if we can develop ways of approaching practical things in life 
then it doesn't have to be such a, a difference between being on retreat and being off retreat. For example, when you when we're looking at raga or desire, then one of the ways that we can work with it every day is through our relationship with food. Because if we really look at our relationship with food, then it will tend to mirror our relationship with the whole sensual realm. So this little microcosm of the world in our bowl or on our plate. So for example, on the retreat we have the opportunity where, where we're not distracted by anything. We don't have to be distracted. We don't have to make polite conversation. We're encouraged not to make any conversation. We're encouraged that our only responsibility is to make the meal into a, a meditation. So food is considered one of the four requisites for a monastic. And looking after the requisites, our, our relationship to the requisites is part of sila, or morality. So, for example, when the next time you go for a meal, even before you taste anything, just knowing that the meal's coming up, what's going on in your mind? So that's the first step. Already that's time to practice. And then as you're waiting in line, again, Pay attention to whatever anticipation there is. The uh, sense of hope for, uh, for gratification. Now there's a, a difference between hunger and desire. You know, there's a basic hunger uh, and you know, that, there's nothing we can do about that. We need food. But we tend to add a whole lot on top of that. And then as you go and uh, you're taking the food, again, just watch what's going on in your mind. Before we've even tasted anything, how easy it is to identify certain types of foods just by their color and their shape. And really it's just color and shape. You know, it's like there's, there's red, it's orange, it's white. When it comes right down to it, it's pretty basic. You just got colors and shapes. And yet, uh, very quickly, we can uh, make that complicated. So try to unravel some of the ways that we relate to a table full of food even before we have tasted anything. You might look at a particular uh, table full of food and you think, mm, oh, that's rice, okay? Uh, that's white rice, so that's brown rice. White rice is healthy. No, brown rice is healthy. No, better take brown rice, but I like white rice. And they say, well, forget the rice because there's a pasta dish that's better in this. You go with the pasta dish, but okay, you don't even know what it tastes like yet. 
and you go through the, the different types of foods. Now, some of the foods, um, <coughs> just pay attention to the projections. I like this. I don't like that. If I like this, then it's good. If I don't like that, then it's bad. And if we try to get down to the very basics of life, just looking at color, shape, and then what happens? We project a uh, name on it. We'll call it. Look at something, say, okay, green, fluffy, broccoli. And then either a perception comes up, oh, healthy, delicious, I like broccoli. Or perception may come up, yuck, I've always hated broccoli. Or whatever. There's nothing intrinsic in the broccoli about that. And you just, we're projecting that on it. Pay attention to that. Now, one of the things that I like to do is just take some from every dish because, especially as uh, among people tend to make dishes and bring dishes and offer it, and um, quite often they put a lot of time and effort into it. So whether I think a delicious a dish is going to be delicious or not, then uh, I try to take some from every dish. Now, it's also just a good practice, saying, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, if I like it or if I don't like it, that's not the main thing. Well, if it's healthy, then it's good to eat. And then try to uh, look at just what the right amount is. As the food's going into your bowl or your plate, just try to judge what's the right amount not too much and not too little. But generally when we're developing meditation it's helpful um, not to overeat. Ajahn Chah used to teach oh, just eat um, to the point where you know that in a few bites you're going to be full and then stop just before that and then take a, a drink to fill you up because that will help uh, the body and mind be nice and light for meditation. It's one of the reasons that we uh, don't eat in the evening. It's very practical for meditation because you get all of the digestion finished early on in the day. And then by the evening time, the body's very nice, light, it's not heavy, not sleepy. As you're eating, then pay attention to the whole cycle of eating. You'll notice as, you, as uh, you're about to take your first bite, this whole cycle of desire, gratification, and then desiring more. As you place the, the food into your mouth, and you can just pay attention to uh, the level that, of gratification that you can experience. And one of the reasons that 
we fall into delusion in life is because we don't look at the whole process we don't look at, at all the information of what's happening in life we tend to look at certain parts of it uh, which we prefer to look at for example in when we're eating the first part of the bite tends to be the, the part which is interesting the middle of the bite tends to be a bit boring already by the end of the bite it's it's very boring and usually we're out here looking for the next bite part of the reason why we develop mindfulness is to give the mind more information so if we don't have enough information then we can't make wise decisions if we give it enough information then we don't have to force ourselves to do to act in a wise way to lead to practice a life that's leading to liberation because it's naturally going to flow in that way but in a very simple thing like chewing one bite halfway through the bite if you notice that it's starting to get boring and you're looking for something else then look at how that cycle you know, repeats itself not just while we're eating but in our life whenever there's a cycle of delving into something uh, delicious you know the first part uh, there's a burst of sensation you get a sense hit and then whatever um, expectation there was you know there's a certain amount of gratification that fulfills that expectation but then as time progresses as that bite progresses it tends to become a boring mush and at that point then it's important to con continue paying attention to that because there's nothing less nutritious about boring mush except that we think it's boring it doesn't have that same sense hit so this whole cycle of uh, desire and gratification is essentially what keeps us uh, in the cycle of birth and death samsara and so if we can understand one bite fully then something deep in our heart starts to understand that that's not just one bite that we're talking about that same cycle repeats itself in so many other areas of, of life so that's why even while you're sitting down at the meal you know pay close attention to every bite and listen to your body and how much is enough and then when it's when you when you've had enough then again you take your dishes and, and clean things up and and uh, our our bowl is uh, like I was saying earlier today you know when we're eating that's our meditation object and we, we really 
try to take it seriously in the same way as we would take a, uh, a session of meditation very seriously. And when it's time to, uh, to clean up, then we don't just treat the ball as if it's uh, an old pot. Uh, even, the, even the bowl that we have you know, is, uh, received the, the alms food of other people. So uh, there's a certain respect for it. In fact, because we try to do everything uh, as a mindfulness practice, then even caring for the ball, washing for the ball, is done in a very prescribed way. And you can do the same thing with your dishes. When we wash our ball, we make sure that we never clunk it on anything, we never bang it on things. Uh, one of the ways we look at it is if, imagine the ball was the Buddha's head. And then uh, we try to treat it with a certain amount of um, respect and reverence and care, as if you are handling the Buddha's head. So you wouldn't just kind of toss it off to the side or clunk it or anything heavy. And these type of perceptions around food then are very valuable for uh, helping us to develop mindfulness because uh, to treat even something as simple as a bowl or a plate with great care takes a lot of mindfulness. You really have to focus, you really have to have mindfulness established in front of you. So through the whole practice of eating, from getting in line and perceiving the food, to eating the food, to cleaning up afterwards, the, the whole process can be very instructive. And we can learn a lot about how desire works. How desire is born of certain projections. How desire tends to actually limit our happiness and steal our happiness. Even though it, it tends to promise happiness, the reality is, if we really look at it, is that in the present moment, it actually steals the happiness that's right there, that's right here. Instead of just being perfectly content, somehow the mind is saying, well, yeah, this is okay, but I'd be even happier if this happened in the future, over there somewhere. Now, on the, um, the level of doing things which are very practical and uh, good uh, to integrate into daily life, one of the other things is um, how we approach our uh, the chores period, for example. Now, when we're developing uh, a mindfulness practice in daily life, it's not like there's just one mindfulness, but there's, there's a whole range of, mind, of levels of mindfulness. And you can become more and more and more clearly aware of what you're doing. 
And there are so many other wholesome qualities of mind which you can also develop while you're doing very ordinary things. Like, for example, if your job happens to be cleaning the, the Dhamma meditation hall, then say, well, how can I make this into a Dhamma practice? How can I bring a, a, an attitude which is going to be developing wholesome states of mind for this very ordinary thing of cleaning a Dhamma hall? Say, well, one is, is to do it with uh, mindfulness, being very clearly aware. One, another is to do it with sense of energy and enthusiasm. Say, okay, well, wonderful. What, what greater thing could there be to do to, to uh, clean a Dhamma hall so that other people can use it for meditation and purification of their own heart? You do it uh, out of sense of devotion. Sometimes in Thailand, when we would uh, be doing the chores, depending on the monastery, some of the monasteries, they do things very quickly. You know, it's like a group of us will go into the Dhamma hall, grab the rags, do the shrine, do the Buddha images, wash the floor, and boom, boom, boom. There's a lot of uh, enthusiasm and energy and, uh, uh, and a feeling of, you know, it actually becomes fun. And it, it is generally done silently, so that it really is like a meditation. And it's good if it's done um, with enough energy that the mind doesn't start to space off. Because if you're just kind of cleaning and then daydreaming, it's not really meditation. or it's not a focused meditation. So sometimes doing with, again, find that balance where the mind's uh, relaxed and yet really into what's being done, paying close attention. If that means um, bringing up a bit more energy, then great. If it means you have to relax, then whatever, but just find that balance. Or if your job is to, to clean up after the meal, or to help prepare the meal. Again, um, do the whole thing like a meditation. You know, the, try to pay attention to everything that, that can be done. We try to have the attitude of doing everything 100%. You throw your, put your whole heart into something. You know, if your job is to to clean the, the toilets, or to clean the shower, then say, well, look, is, uh, have I, are there any spaces that I haven't cleaned? Something as ordinary as that. And Buddhism is very profound, and yet we have a saying in the monasteries that if if you go to a monastery and you want to know how good the practice is of the monks, and you look in the toilets. <laughs> because if people are, are really practicing 
then it will manifest in very ordinary ways. They say, if you want to know, if you go to a monastery and you want to know how the lay people in the monastery are practicing, then you look at the kitchen. How clean and orderly and tidy everything is. So these are, are, are attitudes which we can then take out of the retreat, incorporate into our life, and, and uh, apply to everything in our life. One of the benefits of being at a lake cabin is that on a clear day you can go down to the lake and there's this beautiful clear blue reflection, very deep blue reflection. And there's this uh, traditional group of meditation objects which are called casinas. Casinas are uh, either colors or elements which are then focused on and then will have certain effects on the mind depending on uh, the nature of the object. So if you find that raga is coming up a lot, raga is a sense of greed or desire, then one of the antidotes for that is uh, the blue casino, or the water casino. And if you go down, go down to the lake, then you've got blue water, and a beautiful deep blue water that is naturally calming, peaceful. So that's one of the benefits of being out in the forest. You can actually take nature in different aspects as meditation objects. You go down to the lake and you look into this deep blue color, especially when the, the water is, is not rippled by the wind. And just focus on that. And you don't have to you don't have to try to think anything in particular. You don't have to try to conceive it in any particular way. But just looking at it, understanding it, allowing it to sink in. In many ways, it's just a matter of getting a lot of garbage in our minds out of the way. Get, that, get some of that tar off of, out of the way. And then just look at a very simple thing, like a, a peaceful blue lake. And it sinks in, and it has an effect. Again, you know, a little bit of experience, direct experience, is worth much more than any explanation.
So I can encourage people to experiment with different types of meditations and then see what the effect is. If you can start to get uh, a handle <coughs> on the basic inclination of the mind looking for happiness, then that in itself is not anything um, bad. It may be unhelpful, it may be sometimes leading to suffering, but uh, it's not, uh, like in a Judeo-Christian way, sinful or bad. Simply, it's simply the way things are. But when we start to understand this very basic movement in the mind, inclination to seek happiness and pleasure, then first thing to do is to be very aware of it, acknowledge that it's there, acknowledge its, its existence. It's what we call mindfulness, bringing, bringing a sense of clear awareness and attention to that process. But mindfulness in itself is not enough. The whole path is not just mindfulness. Another step there is, is acceptance. Really accepting that, okay, well, this is the way it is. Because we may have all sorts of socially conditioned responses to that. We may have all sorts of uh, scripturally conditioned responses towards that. So acceptance of whatever is arising without judgment is very important. But then also right effort is essential. For every step in the Noble Eightfold Path, you have to have both mindfulness and right effort with all of the other steps. And right effort is, is to actually do something about it. And sometimes that means just being aware of it and it dissipates. Sometimes it needs to be more active. One of the very useful ways of working with desire and the inclination towards happiness is to channel that back into meditation so that the happiness that we're, we're looking for, let's say, well, can I find that in a simple breath? I mean, if you just if you just look at one breath, so simple and natural, peaceful. If there's nothing getting in the way, it's like drinking ambrosia.
And you say, well, if I can find that much happiness just in a, paying attention to an in-breath, feeling that relaxation of an in-breath, and then feeling the relaxation of an out-breath. Imagine the potential then uh, as we delve further and further into the heart. And if we channel that inclination, that desire for happiness into the meditation, then look for Look for the happiness, look for the joy, look for whatever it is in the meditation itself. Because when you start to experience that joy, then it has a certain momentum to it, and then you want to meditate more, and then meditation is fun. And then meditation, it's not something that you have to force yourself to do because you think it's good for yourself. Or it's not something that you even need to discipline yourself with because you want to do it. It's fun. You can see and experience the happiness right then and there. And this is the type of uh, sort of a wise way of working with desire. It's not like the direct way of overcoming desire, but it's a way that you can start to channel it into a, a, a wholesome way, which is going to lead eventually to uh, a deeper and deeper understanding of peace. So when you're looking at desire, it's good to keep in mind that the Buddha talked about the desire which relates to the sensual realm, to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental objects, but then also the desire to be free, the desire for liberation. And there's different words for that in Pali, even though we don't have those words in English. So the desire for enlightenment, the desire for liberation, that's a Dhamma Chanda the desire to practice the Dhamma. So you can take this basic element of desire and then instead of trying to fight it, which usually isn't very helpful, just sort of encourage it into the direction of the meditation, into the direction of Dhamma practice. And there can be a lot of uh, wholesome energy there that can spur us along. Tonight I offer this for your reflection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.